Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, all theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome back to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most ex- uh, exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called The Big Move, and it is covering shows that had such success off-Broadway. They just had to transfer it to the great white way and try some luck over there. I am Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts, and with me today is our godmother of the pod, pod mother if you will you have been waiting for her impatiently lord knows i have too please welcome back alessandra gordon wow mother has arrived mother has <laughs> arrived in every Feels sense of the special. word for this episode for this episode wow. mother has arrived i really feel special thank you so much you you are special i love you very dearly despite the fact that i think you're awful I, and i think that about myself too so we're all in agreement we're all in agreement we're all in the same <laughs> Posh We're all on the with, same page. Yeah. Um, Allie, what what show are we talking about today? Uh, today we are talking about a show that was a big old hit of the Broadway season in the year 2004. It is the play Doubt. Doubt, now known Doubt, a parable. A parable. It yeah. was not called that. Like when, like if we went and found a, a playbill from the no. year 2004, it wouldn't be called that. 2004, 2005. Yeah, no. Um, okay. John Patrick Shanley added the parable bit when the play got published, I believe. Uh, okay interesting. yeah which i i think it's sort of like a little hat on a hat to do that just call it doubt babe you know do you think there's a possibility that it also had to do with like the movie and that it was like doubt a parable is the play and doubt is the movie and they're similar but not the same honestly kind of maybe because when you look up doubt uh online doubt the movie comes up i know yes you have to write doubt a parable to get the wikipedia page for the play so so Um, so maybe yeah. Like and you how saw... it's like Moonstruck, parentheses, a parable. <laughs> moonstruck, a parable. A warning. <laughs> Working girl, a fable. Um, it's just, <laughs> and we should just start adding those tags to all of our favorite things. Just, I I mean, John Patrick Shanley. Actually, didn't What's It Called have a, have a subtitle outside Mullingar? Didn't that have a subtitle too? Did it? It was like a fairy, a fairy tale of the real life something. Outside Mullingar. 
an erotic fantasy yes. um i don't know i honestly i cannot tell you a single person who saw outside mollingar um me i saw, outside saw Mollingar. It? yes why um because <laughs> I, I saw a video of deborah messon doing that accent and i went i need to see this in person and so i did <laughs> yeah i remember that like most of the talk about it because it was it was deborah messing's broadway debut and that was big news because will and grace had been off the air for like six years at that point so she was and she was doing some TV show before this. So, like, she was still famous and, like, in the trades. But she wasn't at the height of her fame. So everyone's like, well, let's see what this is. And it was all the, all the talk was just about her accent. I mean, it was noteworthy. Yeah. Was that a fair thing to say? As noteworthy as Annalie Ashford's accent in Kinky Boots. I'm so sorry. I can't I can't open the door and talk about Annalie Ashford or we'll talk about nothing but Annalie Ashford for the next two and a half hours. Like you can't you can't invite me to swim in this pool. I'm Annalie Ashford, a parable. <laughs> I I can't. I uh, Annalie I can't. Ashford is Sister Aloysius in doubt a parable. Can you imagine? That Honestly, would be I can so funny. I will do what <laughs> needs to be done. Yes. That's exactly what she would do. And we have oh. we are not completely um on the exact same page about Annalie, but we are on the same chapter about her. Sure. Uh, as long as we're our thumbs are somewhere in the same section of yes, the book. We are in the same book, we are in the same chapter. Uh yeah. you are probably like six pages in, whereas I'm on like page one. Okay. Uh yeah, but it's absolutely it's fine. It's whatever. So maybe we should talk about Doubt a Parable. Oh, um, maybe we should. Yeah. So Ali, what is your history with this show? Um, okay. So this show came out when I was in high school. I did or the end of middle school? It was our, it, it came out our freshman year of high school. It was off Broadway cool. in the fall winter of 2004 and transferred that February of 2005. Awesome. Okay. So <laughs> I This is what I'm here for. No, I love that. I, I appreciate that. What I remember about Doubt in its original run in New York was that it was uh not just like a, a critical hit, but it it sort of gained a reputation as being the like um erudite intelligent thing to do around town and that like it was like the topic of dinner conversation for adults and that like you were lame if you couldn't participate in the doubt conversation yeah so much so that my parents who famously did not like plays or musicals but especially not plays saw it and they did like it i don't i, I don't remember them like being like that was a huge waste of my time but like you know that if somebody's being pressured into seeing a show, it must be because that show is like some sort of cultural. It, it became sort of like the zeitgeist for a short period of time. Yeah. Uh, so I have a very strong memory of my parents going to see Doubt. And I also have a very strong memory of my mom coming home and going, I don't know what the point was. The guy did it. And, <laughs> and I was like, sure. Yeah. But I also remember as a kid being like, isn't the point that like you're supposed to also leave the theater with doubts and that like nobody has proven right or wrong in any way? And my mom was like, um, no, I think yeah. it was the priest. So we can let that rest. And I was like, great. The only person in the world who felt no doubt about doubt was my mom. Yeah. Well, Fantastic. and as I told and as I told you before we watched the video at Lincoln Center Library at Toft, uh, I watched an interview. I think it was Theater Talk with Cherry Jones, uh, Brian F. O'Burn and uh, John Patrick Shanley. And Michael Riedel, who called it one of the best plays he's ever seen, said, you know, asked because they were I think they were still doing a Manhattan Theater Club. It, they had announced Broadway, but they hadn't transferred just yet. And they were he was asking them sort of like audience reactions. And Cherry Jones had said, what's interesting is, you know, then there are some people who are 
on the fence and don't know. And then there are, you know, obviously like two resolute camps. She goes, the camp of people that are resolute that the priest is guilty are always mothers. Mothers are all. It makes so much sense to me. I believe that so thoroughly. And I also understand why when I was like 15 years old and just vaguely aware of what the script was supposed to be, because I probably read, you know, a review Mm -hmm. was like, you're being so closed minded. You're supposed to be confused when you leave mom. And now that I'm older, I'm like, yeah, I did it. My mom. Yeah. My mom was also right. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, and as you know, the structure of this of this podcast has gone out the fucking window. Yeah, um, sorry. But no, but uh, having seen the movie, because I remember, I also remember when the play came out, like there are, there was a time, ladies and gentlemen, when the American play was actually culturally relevant and like was a touchstone for theater goers of new york and like was a talking point for the country like think back of when death of a salesman came on broadway or streetcar named desire like plays used to make stars and they used to actually run and they were profitable and like hollywood was clamoring to make the movie versions of them that has honestly gone away and the only plays lately that have run and made money have been the british imports like curious incident harry potter lehman trilogy i think the last american play to premiere on broadway and like be critically successful, commercially successful, and tour was uh, what the Constitution means to me. Oh, but, but yeah. even th- which I intend to cover on this podcast later. But in terms of like something similar to Doubt, it's really August Osage County. I would say like the four major American plays of this century that came to Broadway were critically successful, financially successful, toured, and like you know people. There's a shorthand for them: are Proof, Doubt, um, and August Osage County. I, I yeah. think I said I think I said four, but I can't remember what I thought the other fourth one was. But those three specifically are very much like they ran, they toured, they made money, all won the Pulitzer. If you were a hip New Yorker, you saw you that saw them. You saw it, so you could talk about it. Um, Do you remember? I know that he is British. What was the Tom Stoppard play play that was in like three parts? Coast of Utopia. Oh my God, Coast of Utopia. Did that premiere in? across like overseas or did that premiere on broadway i feel like that had a broadway premiere it no it the play itself premiered in the uk the production we got was not a transfer it was a brand new production okay uh, okay i remember it being sort of like the tom stoppard play that started here and like that kind of being the like yeah we got this one suck it yeah uk the interesting thing about stoppard is like pretty much every time a production of a stopper play comes here the ones that are the most successful are the ones that are not direct transfers they're the ones that like an american director takes over Did, for. like a restaging of. yeah so like yeah. with the real thing i know uh the production that we got in the 80s by mike nichols was a brand new production that one was like his biggest hit until that point and coast of utopia you know uh trevor nunn directed the one in london and like the reviews in london from american critics were like the play is good this production is not and mm-hmm. so when lincoln center took it on they're like jack o'brien like you do what you want to do so he, and, and the other thing about that production was like it was because it was so huge it had a whole slew of different designers so it had like three separate set designers three separate lighting designers right, 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 right. and you no know, they there were marathon days there were you know all this other stuff and then i remember it was very controversial when uh charles isherwood wrote a piece like a month into the run and he was like i'll admit it I was bored at Coast of Utopia, which was like something you were not allowed to say. You were right because it was dumb. a big. That was another big cultural moment. Like Coast of Utopia was another like if you don't see it, you must not be cultured. Don't yeah. you want to be able to keep up with the dinner conversation? But I, I guess I was also saying like I sort of remembered a weird like American Broadway um, 
uh, ownership over it. Yeah. And I guess what you're saying makes sense that we like restaged it better yeah, here. we did. and so we were like, well, this one's the American one. <laughs> yeah, but it happens all the time though. Like, it's, it's why like there's the British fetish fetishization of American works, and like there's when it when a British revival comes here of an American work, it's always with the clout of we did it better. And it's the same thing when like when Americans stage a British play for the first time and do it so well, we're like, we did it better than you. So like, Coast of Utopia, real thing, right, right, right. Um, most recently, like the Death of a Salesman revival that came over came with the air of the British did it best. Then again, I saw that production and I don't think they did it best, but hey, here we are. Um, <laughs> uh, doubt though, yeah, I'm like, it came to Broadway with that energy of like, this is the thing. And in a season that also like had Spamalot that was kind of running around being the big hit of the year, yeah, uh, Spelling Bee transferred that year as well. And like, that had a lot of buzz to Atlanta. The Piazza was sort of everyone being like, what's this weird musical that's half an Italian? And Doubt was just sort of the one that's like, nope, like, like Spamalot, it's making money. Like uh, Spelling Bee, it has all the critics raving. And uh, like Land of the Piazza, it has everybody talking. So it's all three combined yeah. in a perfect I mean, what did the, it was like, that was truly a spectacular theater season, like, it was, in general. Yeah. I didn't, I did not see Doubt, not because I didn't go see plays as a teenager, which I definitely did, but like, I have a vague memory of my parents being like, you get one gift for Hanukkah and you get one gift for your birthday. And I think I saw Spelling Bee and I think I saw Light in the Piazza. Like, I think this just didn't make the uh, the 14-year-old girl's ideal cut of what she was going to see. <laughs> TBH. As her, as her birthday present. TBH, you picked right. Um, those are absolutely the right things to see. Yeah. Also, I mean, also, like, I've now seen scenes from Doubt uh in my acting school career uh -huh. you know four thousand times um and it is certainly deserving of it's like uh like you were saying proof like yeah. it's like deserving of that status of the like quote-unquote great american contemporary play that has such strong scene work and such indelible little characters that like it becomes acting school fodder for eternity like, yeah. we'll never replace these scenes being handed out to sophomores ever. Yeah. And you sometimes forget how good the play is when you when your last memory of it was like a, a classmate of yours, like stumbling through it and not really understanding the weight of it. Yeah. Um, that when we went to go watch this, to me, it felt like I'd never seen doubt before, like genuinely, like mm -hmm. Even though I knew exactly what was going to happen, I probably could have scene by scene given you a summary of the scenes in order because I've seen scenes from Doubt so many times. I genuinely felt like I'd never heard the words before because, like, you forget what it's like when you see truly fantastic actors yeah. <laughs> take on the script. Um, and it's amazing. And it, it is, like, absolutely as good as everybody says it is. It's so fantastically and tightly written with really memorable, very different characters. Mm -hmm. um, it's great. It's great. I'm, I'm going to counter you a little bit. I think it's very good. I don't think it's great. Oh, uh, I, I, I like was prepared to be like, yeah, it's doubt. And after we went to go see it at at the at theater link at the, the Lincoln Center uh, Library, which was very fun, by the way, Mar Matt and I used to go to to Lincoln Center Library to watch shows all throughout high school. This felt very nostalgic. I really appreciated it. Yeah, um, I was watching Kiss of the Spider Woman. That was that's a great memory. Oh my! When are we going to talk about that on this this podcast? It's like a favorite show. Um, <laughs> I love it. Um, wait, so we I was watching it and like 
the cast is a cast of proud weirdos, which I mm. love because like it's like we. I guess I thought I was being unprincipled by talking about what I was talking about before, but actually it all ties back. Um, when you see an actor who is so good and so relaxed and so in control of their craft, you realize that the mark of a truly great actor is that they start to kind of make their characters mm. fucking weirdos. And everybody in doubt is a very strange character. They are like unusual people portrayed unusually by confident actors. And that is the thing that I missed every time I've ever gone to see Doubt or ever seen it in like a student production or a a college acting class, which is that they get boiled down to these uh, really sort of base level characteristics, which is that like Sister Aloysius is cold and strict and uh, Sister James is flighty and young and the priest is a real creep and kind of a bully and that's what ends up happening and then you go oh that's a fine show i i understand that cool and then you go see you know cherry jones do it and you're like oh she's not just a weird strict cold woman who spends her days in her office she's like this loving and exacting presence who doesn't know how to who like through the trauma of her life has no idea how to produce warmth. But to her, love is manifested in the form of protection. And yeah. she is actually an intensely loving character. Um, but you wouldn't know it unless you spent an entire play with her. Yeah. Cool. Amazing. Like, like that's the level of that's the thing that I experienced for the first time watching Doubt with you watching the original cast do it. Yeah. No, there's all there was so I don't want to sound mean like i i enjoyed watching it and i and i knew i was going to like the play more watching that video with you because am i gonna sneeze no unfortunately not um the (laughs) the thing i didn't really mention yet on this episode but i do think i mentioned it when you and i did the national theater episode was the season of doubt i did not see it i had read it towards the end of the season and i had seen the pillow man and i remember seeing the pillow man going i can't imagine anything actually being better than this mm-hmm. so like and i was really annoyed that the conversation about doubt was that it was so unimpeachably brilliant that nothing could touch doubt that year like what i felt about the pillow man everyone else was saying about doubt and i was like i could and i remember being like i could see a world where doubt is as good as the pillow man you cannot tell me that doubt is better than this and cool. i get that i mean no. look to speak about this has all been very weirdly cyclical the same year as the Coast of Utopia nonsense was the same year as my favorite play that nobody knows or likes, Quorum Boy. And it was the same thing where no one saw any play in New York City that wasn't Coast of Utopia. And so yeah. nobody saw Quorum Boy. And so it closed in like four days. Yeah. And so to me, it was that same thing of like, you are the big bully on Broadway who's taken all the press. So mm-hmm. like, I understand the impetus to be like, no, my thing. Yeah. Why isn't anyone paying attention to my thing? It's also not the show's fault. It's the cyclical, it's the cyclical hype machine of Broadway of when the community decides that one show is the thing. Right. It's, and there, then you can't go against the machine. Yeah. There's no stopping it. It's, it's the Hamilton syndrome, right? Like, I will always get on my soapbox and say that Shuffle Along deserved choreography over Hamilton. Um, I also would have probably given uh, Shuffle Along costumes over Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton is amazing. But I was like, guys, it did not. it's not an 11 Tony win 
thing. Like there are, there are things you can spread the wealth on, but that is just sort of how I always am. I, I yeah. very rarely think any production is worthy of like a total sweep. I think I like maybe have five things in the last 30 years that I would say that about point is when the movie came out, I remember that was when sort of people soured on the material because with that movie, it's very faithful to the show. I mean, there's like pockets of things that like John Patrick Shanley added to the screenplay, but it's mostly the play and he directed it. So he was in total control of like the tone of it, the tempo of it. And everyone was like, this is how you see your material. Like it's coming off very melodramatic and kind of stilted. And Meryl was riding high because she had, you know, Devil Wears Prada and Mamma Mia and she was becoming a box office draw again. And it was the whole like, what can't Meryl do? And I remember with the Dow performance, the talk was sort of like, she's good. She's not great, but she's good. Y- yeah. Um. Then <laughs> the, the most of the talk was about Viola Davis and how she kind of stole the movie. Oh, and, for and, sure. Which she My absolutely God. did. I will say watching the play with you, I was surprised at how there's there is humor in the movie but so much of it is is removed from the stage show like they the stage show has a lot more laughter in it than the movie does yeah well i also think it's because they're weirdos like yeah i like the way that brian f o'burn plays father flynn when he finally turns on his anger when you see him genuinely furious and exerting his status for the first time it's shocking because he plays him as kind of this like lanky strange goofball yeah like like, i'm one of you yeah he like he's kind of playing like young cool teacher who like is happy to be at the butt of a joke and like when he's doing his sermons he's doing funny voices and accents and stuff and you like fully understand why he skates under the radar Mm -hmm. if that is exactly if that is what he is doing for so long and so successfully because he doesn't play him like a weird lascivious creep he plays him like a charming bronx weirdo and then when he finally raises his voice you're like oh right you're uh you have you have a lot of power and you're happy to wield it which is how you get away with what you get away with for so long which is that like you know when to strike and when not to there's... It's great, but like uh, when stuff like that gets removed, God love her because I do, I really do adore Amy Adams. So I, I don't want to be one of those people who goes down on record for being like anti Amy Adams. I really love her, but like I really think her performance in the movie of Doubt is like unsuccessful. Yeah, because she's just kind of playing this like wide eyed, sweet, impressionable young woman, which is like certainly not a misread of the text but like is missing what i is missing a certain something i didn't have words for until i went and i saw um what's her name heather goldenschmidt something i'm, I'm looking at heather now. goldenhurst heather goldenhurst yes she is so weird yeah she is the weirdest woman who's ever her as sister james i'm sure she is a regular person is not weird but i'm saying her portrayal of sister james is the weirdest lady she is like fidgety and inward and loud and has the strangest accent and voice and you're just like oh i i see in you a woman who is a little lost and is also like the kind of person who would take their what is it called you take your vow you take your sacrament what is it when you decide to become a nun 
Whatever. Um, yeah, isn't it your vows? Or something? Yeah, I thought because you're marrying, you're marrying God. So I guess right. she has a line about how like she wouldn't find it appropriate to talk to the young girls about their like burgeoning sexualities because mm. she has she took her vows before she ever did anything yeah. sexual with anybody, and like in her performance, you see that you see this like person who is like, oh, you were lost and you really needed something and you found God and that is what you've like decided to cling to and you're going to be a good teacher. I don't know. I, I just. The, there was nothing what, about that in Amy Adams's performance, and so she felt so fragile and baby bird like that. Like it was like so easy to believe that she'd have the wool pulled over her eyes. Do you Heather, know I mean? you know Heather played vulnerability. Amy played innocence, and yeah. there's a there's a big difference because it's yes. So it's it's Sister James is the is the yeah. character, yeah. Because it's and we'll sort of go a little further in, about the plot of this show in a second. But uh, Sister James is young. She's uh, rather new to the convent, I suppose. Um, at, at least as a teacher, she's a, she's new as a teacher, and her her our introduction to her with Sister Aloysius is uh, talking about how she approaches teaching, and Sister James approaches history with all this passion and love, and like really wants the children to learn through her excitement about the subject. And Aloysius is like, no, that's not what you do. You give them the facts, they memorize it, and we move on. Uh, and part of it, that is a foreshadowing for the rest of the play, because what Sister Aloysius is trying to say is, like, don't let your perception of the world or, like, your biases color the facts. You have to see what's actually there and then determine from that. And Sister James is she takes it all so painfully, like Sister Aloysius is basically giving her. An employee review. I wouldn't say it's the most constructive criticism because she's not <laughs> she's not saying it because she's not saying it to her in a way that's like you're doing good work, but here's how you are going to do it better. She's like, you're not doing a good job. And if you care about this, you'll start doing a good job. Here are the five things you got to do. And Sister Aloysius is so tough because she's got to be that she's like, what's the problem with what I said? I just gave you information to make you better and like right. we as an audience are watching and be like yeah you destroyed her house before then giving her like five planks of wood to build a new one and right. and it's you also like something i didn't really understand from the movie i i don't know if it was a performance thing or a rewriting thing but like there's a moment in the play that like really struck me in uh the cast that we watched where when sister james and father flynn have a private conversation for the first time she starts off really cold to him because she's still suspecting yeah. he sort of weasels his way in and gets her to like open up about things that make her emotional which are mostly her kids he like turns her vulnerability against her and then she breaks down and is like i don't have the same relationship with them that i used to anymore i don't feel like they trust me anymore and sister aloysius has completely destroyed my my love of teaching and it's like oh he's so smart he's good at what he does yeah. because he knew that if he was going to find an ally in her, he would use what they what he says is also his weakness, which is don't you ever just see a kid and want to help them, even if it's not the quote unquote right thing to do at the quote unquote right time. Don't you ever want to break a rule just because you see a kid in pain? And she's like, yes, because she does feel that way because she's not at the level of re remaining a step removed from the kid's as a form of love and respect that like sister Aloysius thinks that it is. Do you know what I mean? That like, we're not their friends, though they're teachers. They have themselves for be to be friends with, but yeah. like sister James doesn't believe that yet. 
and finds so much love and meaning in her life through the love of the students that when Sister Aloysius is like, well, the kids aren't supposed to love you. They're supposed to respect and be kind of scared of you. It becomes like the weapon with which they're able to like turn the whole thing against her and like get Sister James on the side of Father Flynn. That was a really convoluted way of saying what I was trying to say. The, I hope that the, made sense. Yeah. So the scene you're referring to with Father Flynn and Sister James is so for anyone who doesn't know the plot of doubt, it takes place <laughs> at a uh, Catholic school, right? Catholic school in like the Bronx, I guess, in, in yes, the early 1960s. Yeah, in the early 1960s. It is very soon after JFK's assassination, which we learned because the play opens with one of Father Flynn's sermons. And he's sort of talking about when you aren't sure. What happens when you have doubts, basically? A little on the nose for the theme of the play, but here we are. And part of the reason why he brings it up is because with the president's assassination, we're all sort of in flux and unsure of what to do, how to talk about it, and all these things. So that's where, like, the nation is at. That's where this school is at. The whole country has just gone through a trauma. And the thing about trauma is that when it goes unregistered, when it goes uncared for, the body still holds onto it, even if the mind's trying to repress it. And so everyone is kind of on edge in general, just from that alone. And then in addition to this, Father Flynn is rather new to the parish of this con- of this Catholic school. I think he's only been there for a year, maybe a little less than that. Like, yeah. And he teaches basketball for, uh, uh, for the boys. And, uh, you know, there's uh, what do they call when like boys are joining as like um altar boys? Is uh, they were saying like he's joined the registry or something like that. Yeah, God, yeah. it does suck when we have two Jews talking about a show with a Catholic school, huh? One thousand percent. I'm like, what are these terms? I don't know. Really, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow collar. You're the top. You're a Coolidge It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And basically, the, the school's first black student, Sister Aloysius, is asking Sister James because she is the uh, student's teacher. Basically, just trying to stay on top of him, be, not because like she necessarily cares about him as a human being. It's not like Sister Aloysius is like, I like that boy. He's sweet. She's like, he's our first black student. It, it's She goes, and uh, as an objective observer, she's like, it's stupid to not worry about his safety. We have to like be on top of this. And Sister James is like coming at it from empathy. And Aloysius is like, no, be a disciplinarian. And then to complicate matters further, they, she finds out that Father Flynn has taken an interest in the boy. And that... An incident occurred that no one was witness to, but uh, Sister James was told by Aloysius to just be on the alert of anything strange she might see. And Sister James informs Aloysius, Father Flynn brought, what's the boy's name? Uh, 
Donald? Yes. Brought Donald into his office. Donald came back rather odd, put, put his head on the desk and didn't pay attention to the rest of class. And when Sister James went to check on him at the end of class, she smelled wine on his breath. And that's all we know. Nothing else else that we know, but this is enough for Sister Aloysius to go in and get Father Flynn the fuck out of this school. And it's a battle of of those two, essentially. And Sister James is sort of the tipping point for either of them, because Sister Aloysius discusses, and it is also a theme of the play, that even though they are nuns in a Catholic school, they are also women in a system that is controlled by men, just like the rest of the world. And that if they are going to be successful, they have to be strategic and they have to be ruthless and they can't always go by the rules. Because if they go to... God, what's... I'm not knowing any of these. I know names. the 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 boss of the, the deacon or whatever. Is the yes, I know. I feel terrible. Of... I should have written this down while we were watching it, but I was sort of entranced. Religions but there's of... another, even more important. Yeah, person it's like archdeacon or something. The boss like that. of the priests. Yes, and he's useless and old and kind of just wants to keep the peace in in all regards. So and is also a man out, and is going to side right. with the men every time. And so like we are told constantly like what the protocol is for sister Aloysius to go through. And she constantly ignores it because she's doing what she thinks is right. And she knows that the system is broken. And in order to actually make the correct thing happen, she's got to not go by any of the rules. And, you know, father Flynn is confronted about, I was actually surprised. I, I didn't realize how early in the play father Flynn is confronted with the Donald stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, I like in my mind, it was like the third act, but it's not, it's like, it's like right in the top yeah yeah it's it's like towards the end of the first act of the three-act structure uh because then the rest of the play is sort of like a battle between the two of them and i bring all this up because you were talking about the scene that father flynn has alone with sister james one of the things that is a battle between aloysius and father flynn is that like she's the old way he's the new way he's about we don't want the church to be scary we want people to like coming to church we want kids to be enthusiastic about religion we want them to like god uh and Aloysius is like, the fuck does that do? Uh, and we learn, you know, she wasn't always a nun. She actually used to be married. Her husband was killed in the war. And she sort of turned to being a nun later in life and found comfort and structure in that. But not because it was a warming presence. It was simply because of, like, the strictness of it all. And she thinks that there is a moral backbone to having that kind of structure. She talks about, like, the disgrace of people's penmanship, and, like, Father Flynn drinks his tea with four sugars and milk, and it's like, it's, she's just like, we need grit in ourselves if we're gonna survive in this world. And she sees through the charm of Father Flynn, because someone like Father Flynn uses that ease to get people on his side. And I bring this back to the Sister James scene with him, uh, because we are watching a master manipulator and charmer at work. The thing I have learned from life that I also think is very well employed in this play is you actually want to be very wary of charming people. Charm is not an actual connection you have with someone. It's someone's ability to get you to let them in. Yeah, I'm I'm always saying this about you. Thank you very I'm, much. I'm saying this about you to anyone who will listen. Thank you so much. You're the only person who would call me charming. Everyone else would be like, I don't know. He's an acquired taste. Hey, I was raised to be charming, not sincere. Like he like he nailed it when he wrote that line. Motherfucking fucker. Yeah, because charm is not actually again. It's not a human connection. It is not two people relating to each other. It's one person who's able to make you think that they are into you. There's a certain uh, actor that I know. 
who has been on the Broadway and he's, you know, been on TV and he's like, a, he's a nice guy, but I learned by being around him that his superpower and what helps him get cast all the time is like, you spend five minutes alone with him and he makes you convinced he wants to fuck you, even yeah. though you know it's not true. Like when, he when you to- can make somebody else feel important and wanted, whether or not it's true, it's like yeah. one of the most powerful tools in the universe. 1000%. Like every time I have a conversation with this guy, and it's been a few years since we've like spoken, spoken, but like anytime we have a conversation, he'll walk away. I'm like, am I about to marry blank, blank? Yeah, and- yeah. And then you like see him do it with the same person. I'm like, oh, no, that's just like something he's able to turn on. And so like Father Flynn is not connecting with Sister James. He is making her think that they are connecting. And he, as you said, like he finds the thing that is that matters most to her that she's super vulnerable about, which is her joy of teaching and her connection with these children and her not not her innocence, but like her desire for good. And he zeroes in on that. And rather than like giving her hope that he can help like get her that joy back he helps her put a villain to her loss of that joy which exactly. as you said it's her it's... saying oh aloysius is the is the enemy because i no longer enjoy teaching and it's because of her it's like no aloysius opened your eyes to the cruelty of the world and the system of which you are a part of and now you can't go back and you hate that and so you blame her but she, right. she but aloysius that's, is that's not the, the one kind of an amazing manipulation and like that's like the surprise of the play that I did not really understand was there and did not give sufficient credit for in my experience of having seen that scene done by two college kids or sure. even watching the movie, which is a fine movie. And I, I certainly think um, Philip Seymour Hoffman is really good, but I just, I don't think that scene is particularly fantastic. And like, that's the thing that was missing for me that I didn't know was missing was that thing of like him seeing someone else, at, and and just understanding implicitly where to stick the knife in because he knows exactly what the best yeah. approach is. And that like he finds Sister Aloysius so difficult, not just because they disagree on things like, should we be, should we have secular music in the Christmas play and do 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 do, but because like she just doesn't have those weak spots. Yeah. She's because she has made sure she will not function in this world with a weak spot that she can find. Yeah. And, and so he can't he can't find the place where he's going to slide the knife in. So he just has to sort of batter against her giant armor and she like won't break. And it's probably the first person he hasn't been able to like figure out the, the way in. And like, you know, when you think about sister James, again, in, in this performance that I really loved of this, like very odd bird, this strange woman who is like, moves strangely and talks strangely yeah, she's and... she's she's a lost she's a lost child essentially in her own right like she's sort so of fun she's sort like of, you under, yeah. I, i'm like i'm like i love her i want to know more about her i want the whole backstory she's not you playing also snow this... white she's playing like she's, she's like playing a... weirdo from the bronx she's playing yeah. like this like tough gal who decided to go into like religion and like you can see the vestiges of like a kind of like a rough and tumble kind of weird gal who like you know cut her teeth in the bronx but now has decided to like turn her life towards like teaching and god and when you understand that she took her vows really early and has never been intimate with somebody and her father does uh, her she has a family but they don't live close because when her brother gets sick she has to leave town now like all that stuff um you start to understand that like 
her version of love, her way to connect to people is to teach. And that like, that was her one and only joy in life was like having kids be like, I love you. You're my best. You're my best teacher when I don't care. I I used to hate history class, but now I like it because when you teach it, you make it alive. And she's like, that is her purpose. But like Sister Aloysius is the only person who works at the school whose purpose in life isn't to get some measure of her purpose does not depend on what the kids give her. Yeah. Everybody else has made it that like the kids give me purpose because when they love me, I feel affirmed even though that like, and that's, I, they, that, I mean that both innocently and not innocently, right? Like James, that's the innocent version of that, which is that like when they tell me I'm a good teacher, I feel like a good person. And then there's the father Flynn thing, which is the sinister version of that. When I go knuckles deep in a boy, I see God, uh, (laughs) sister Aloysius, doesn't need the reassurance of another person to have any worth of herself. Right. So like, and so, so she seems so cold and removed, but she's like the healthiest, so to speak, because, you know, that is a weird thing where like when you are an educator, you're not supposed to make your self-worth depend upon what a fourth grader says to you. Yeah. <laughs> Do you the, know what I mean? They're supposed so, to exist outside of that and still somehow give a part of yourself to them. There, there's a, There's a less intense example i want to give about this which is uh something i learned from my therapist colton thanks colton uh wow, thanks colton thanks colton we were talking about conversations like when when you are trying to explain yourself to someone your truth like when you have something like for, basically anytime you have a quote-unquote difficult conversation with someone where you you need to get something across to them the only way you can do that successfully is sharing your truth without the expectation of a certain kind of response from that person. Do not say what you're saying in the hopes of you will then get a certain response back. Simply speak of what you want and who you are and where you're at, truthfully, because you need to get that across. How they respond is not is not up to you. And if you and if you are only saying this in order to get that response, you're 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 running right. around in circles. And what's the point of putting yourself out there just to say it if you if it all that matters is getting yes. one specific response from yes. and, so, and so, as you said, like Sister James connects with the children because that love that she gets from them gives her purpose. Father Flynn gets that adoration so he can use it uh for his own personal gain down the road. Sister Aloysius does not need the love of the children. She does not need the uh the uh, what's for the devotion of the children for any personal gain, either emotional or manipulatively. That's not a word, but who fucking cares? <laughs> she needs them to respect her because that's just her job. So right. in order, it's like I, my purpose is to get them to learn. We are training these people to go out and become human beings in the world, and anything else is, you know, uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm losing words today, but it's 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 um incidental. Uh, I'm I just like I don't care how they feel about me. I don't care any love that's there. That is just my job, which is why right. she's so. I just want them to go to a so good, good high school. Right. Yeah, and it's why she's so good, and it. it's why she's so strong as a person for the most part. Obviously, she has her vulnerabilities, and like we see, Cherry Jones is so good in the play because you see moments sometimes where it's not that she's being vul- a weak. But rather, like certain 
responses by Father Flynn do take her by surprise. And like there's like a there's a moment where she's sitting down talking about something and he just fucking snaps at her and shouts basically into her face. And you see Cherry Jones flinch because yeah. it's, even and though she like her her hands go inside her habit and she looks like very small and weak and it's like yeah. very sad and scary. Yeah, she go she kind of retreats inside of herself, but then she comes back with a vengeance, which I love. And it's sort of because it's what she's doing is she has a moment where that takes her by surprise and she she maybe even has her own like self-doubt in that second, but then all of a sudden she's starting to recharge. She's like, I'm gonna let him say what he needs to say while I get my while I get my power back, and then I will come back at him with a thousand fires. Right. And whereas in the movie, Meryl is a little more of a piranha, and she's kind of just always looking around, like ready to strike. And Philip Seymour Hoffman is charming in the first half, and then when like things take a turn for the pedophilia, he becomes a bit of a snake oil salesman. Whereas yes. Brian F. O'Byrne, like it's more just all different shades of the same guy, which is, I think, what adds to the place, the play's stage success as opposed to the film success of he, you don't see him flip a switch at any point. You just see him and then watch how he uses different facets to that to himself to get what he wants. Whereas Philip Seymour right. Hoffman's like, now I turn on the emotional charm. Now I turn on the the man charm. And it's you you see the manipulation coming from a mile away, or it's Brian O'Farrell. It's like you're halfway through the scene until you realize when you suddenly what he's doing. realize it's yeah. I completely agree with that. I also think that like so there's a there's a whole conversation that Father Flynn has with Sister Aloysius. I'm pretty sure yeah. it was with her. Where no, maybe it was Sister James. I apologize. I can't remember. But basically, he admits all women that, are the same. Allie, is that what you're saying? Uh, uh, to me, every woman. Is a bitch. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> is a bitch and a nun. A what, bitch is and a Angel- nun. what is this? An Andrew Lloyd Webber musical? Wow. Um, I apologize. He has a conversation with one of the women um, about they ask him basically like where he gets the stories for his sermons. And he says he makes them up. And there's like an implication of just like, so you're lying to us? And he's like, no, I'm telling you a parable. And the point of a parable is to get a larger story and a larger emotional point across and the easiest way to do that is with characters because if i just tell you don't gossip gossip is bad it goes in one ear and out the other but if i can paint you a picture of a story of a man's life who was ruined by gossip and with imagery and this you'll remember it and you'll take it home and you'll remember it forever and it's like what an interest it he is correct in saying that and it also still re- reveals him to be a person who will make up anything so long as it helps um, solidify his correctness. Yeah. We and know he's, he's very good at it because yeah. he gets people to listen to him all the time to tell these stories. And they all go, wow, he's such an effective storyteller. And I'll never forget that thing he said. And it, it all comes down to lies yeah well so he is correct you're right he's correct about the fact that these parables are what help us learn because we're literally watching that happen by watching this play that's anytime you go see a play we're watching uh a dramatic work whether it's based in a factual story or a fictional one like it's it all all successful art helps us learn a little bit about ourselves or gives us tools to go out into the world and make a little more sense of life uh at least in my opinion i think like yeah i agree that's, with that. that that's what makes theater and film and tv so important is you know not just representation but like how we see these stories and we can go out into the world and be like oh what is happening here is like what happened to so and so and such and such and like even if it's even if that was fictitious i actually have some tools now to deal with this because i've 
I've I gained something from the story I was told. Right. Or even if it's just like an unbelievably um authentic representation of one person's existence. Yeah. I don't need to see myself in that story to go, wow. I like understand that that is your story. And like, I wouldn't have had access to that because I don't live your life. Do you know what I mean by that? You literally just described empathy, Allie Gordon. That is no, 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 but that, no, but that's no, but what I mean is I, I just really hate when people are like, well, that's not my journey. So I can't connect. I'm like, that's that's what I'm trying to say is that like, it's less, it's not even just empathy because empathy is step one, right? Empathy is like, just like you should have it please. You should. And then, and then like step two is this thing of like, no, 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 a good story has to appeal to everybody. Everybody has to see themselves in your story or else it's not a good story. And I'm trying to say like, no, I fundamentally disagree with that because when I went to go see A Strange Loop, I fucking loved it and went back and saw it again like immediately. But it wasn't because I saw myself in the story. It's because somebody got the opportunity to unbelievably authentically say what their complications were in life. And I was like, enamored by the storytelling and the humor and the story that is not my life and I never will be and so I got to like have this this fantastically told window into somebody's soul and psyche and I like feel sure I feel empathy for the character but also like thank you for showing me your fucking truth I don't have to go the part of that that I related to. It's like, who cares if I fucking do? Thank yeah. you for showing me something that is real to you. Also, like, why should, I care, what, why should I care about what you related to? Who the fuck are you? What's your journey? Right, that's yeah, so exactly. Special? And why, what makes me so special that the, the quality of a show is being good or not is whether or not I could see myself in it. Like, who gives a shit? But this is all to say, yes, he is correct about how parables work. But you are also correct in the sense that he is lying because he is presenting these stories as truth. He is not saying, let me tell you a story I came up with the other day. He's telling you, like, let me tell you a story I heard the other day. Right. And, and this really happened. And yeah. you should feel bad about this man because this man who's totally real had his life ruined by gossip. And I swear to God, this totally really happened. Yes. It's like, but it didn't really happen. It didn't really happen. You so just you want us lying. to have sympathy for this fake man so we can have sympathy for you. Yeah. And they're all, so it's all these details about him that again. And so when I say like, I think the play is very good, not great. When I, I, I'm not trying to knock it down. I do think it is a very well-structured, tightly written play. And I think it is, most importantly, a platform for truly great actors. And great actors will elevate it to another level, which is, I think, what happened with the original production is they had a tight-knit ensemble of four incredible, weird actors making this, like, a night of good, cathartic drama. Where I feel like the play kind of weakens for me is, like, in the last scene, just because, like, I don't. I think Shanley makes it very clear just even if people have their doubts, I'm sort of on the side of your mother, Allie, where I'm like, I, <laughs> I, I, you cannot, I, you cannot explain to me in any way how the play sets up doubt by the end. It's just, it is, there's too much that's been said and done that it's like, no, there's, there's no, I, human behavior has taught me that he did it. Everything that he has said and done up until this point, how he acts after the fact, what we learn at the very end of the last scene, I'm like, no, there, any like, even if anything is all circumstantial, it's still too. If it's too many coincidences in in a night, chances yes. are it's it's the thing. I uh, mean, so so uh, plot wise, and I guess yeah. skip it if you don't want to know how doubt ends. Um, Sister Who doesn't Aloysius... want to know how doubt ends? <laughs> wow, Sister Aloysius gets another private meeting with 
uh, Father Flynn, where she intimates that she had called a nun who worked at the school he worked at last. Yes. And he gets really furious because he's like, you're not supposed to do that. That's not the that's not the point of order. You're supposed to call the bishop. Yeah. And she's like, well, I didn't call the bishop. I called a nun. And she told me everything I need to know. And he's like, what does that mean? Like, what did she tell you? And she was like, she told me enough. She told me everything that I would need to know. And he even, well, he even, says, he even says, he says, he says, which nun? Right, it, right. It's very, he's not even like, because his his tone isn't like who did you talk to like who would lie about me he's like which nun did you talk to and she's like I don't need to tell you that it's not your business yep. and he's like yep. what did she say and she's like I don't need to tell you that it's not your business yep but it flips him out enough that he requests a transfer to another school yes so he also got transferred to, he also got transferred enough. to this school is the other thing like he's been transferred right. twice. And I that think he's is, actually and, been transferred more than twice. I think she says he's been transferred like three or four times. I think she said three times in five years. Which is yeah. that's like we're talking like every like every every other months. year basically yeah, yeah every fourteen months he gets transferred um and for and Aloysius even says I think in like scene three because after she tells Sister James like keep your eyes open for anything weird and James tells her like Donald came back from the rectory uh which I God I I'm such. I am such a sick person because every time I would hear them refer to it as the rectory, I'm like, I'm sure Donald just came back from the rectory. Uh, because my God, with, we shouldn't be doing this. Uh, you, should not have, you should not have let two Jews be like, yeah, let's do doubt. We totally let's, understand this. We're going to we, be extremely sensitive. Like, listen, <laughs> Allie Gordon, I was groomed in high school, so I absolutely can talk about this play. But I was I am not an African-American child in 1960s Catholic school getting finger blasted by a long nailed priest in the rectory. Oh, my God. Don't bring up the long nails. He has. That's the the thing that's traumatic for me. They talk about how Father Flynn has these like slightly long fingernails. So I'm always just sad for Donald. I'm like, what must that have felt like with the long nails? I'm so sorry, Donald. That was your first experience. I can't do this. Well, we we have to talk about (laughs) his mom. I'm tapping out. We have to talk about his mom at some point because it's important. But um. But yes, as he said, so uh, when James tells Aloysius Donald came back from the rectory, he was odd. He had alcohol in his breath. Aloysius says, so it's happened. And we are and we are led to believe that it's happened once before. And most likely Aloysius was not able to get the result she wanted from it. So this time she's like, to, she is Top Gun Maverick. She's taking that rule book. She's thro- throwing it in the trash. And she's, she's doing, doing what, she's time. doing what needs to be done to protect the child and protect the school. And as you said, eventually she gets down to... Uh, brass tacks and intimates that she called the other school, talked to a nun, not the bishop, and and she heard all she needed to hear, and he transfers. And then the next, she scene, never confirms what she heard or whatever. And then it turns out she actually didn't even call his past school. But the fact that he acted the way he did when she confronted him with that information means there is, without a doubt in her mind, he is guilty. Because yes. if there wasn't anything to cover up and it didn't matter who he talked to, then why would he transfer schools off yep. just merely the idea that she had talked to somebody from his last school? But then she breaks down and says, I have such doubts. But I don't think it's that she has doubts about him. I think it's that she has doubts about like the world and her yeah. function within it and what people in power do. I don't know. This, these are new things also that I also felt like when I was seeing these scenes performed in college or reading this script when I was in high school, when I when she says I have such doubts, I always took it to mean like, oh, she was so confident. But then the, in, a, in a moment of weakness, does she really believe all the things she believes or does she really have doubts? And now I'm like, no, no, she hated that guy and he needed to go and she knew it. The doubts are about like, the world and God and men and power and the religious structures that have given her life 
meaning, but are also um, these institutions which protect the people who don't need to be protected and leave vulnerable the people who need to be to be protected. Like in one thousand percent, yeah. That's the I don't know. I, that's maybe well, I'm that's stupid for saying what is obvious, but like I didn't I know that until I saw Jones. I think that's how Cherry Jones played it, which is why you and I walk away with that because the way Meryl plays it in the movie, it is it does feel more like she's got doubts about. What transpired? Yes. Yeah, totally. And, I think, and the fact that that's how a lot of people interpret it just from reading the text. I don't know if that's a Shanley thing. I don't know if that's just an us thing. But yeah, like I, for the first time watching Cherry Jones in that final scene, I was like, oh, I think it's more that she has doubts about everything else. Like, why? Yes. Like, why must this have happened? Why did I have to do everything I did? for something correct to happen like why right, like, why did i have to to spend six months of my life throwing myself against a brick wall to get even just this to happen yeah like and also like um there's a line earlier in the show where sister james says that like having these doubts and these suspicions of me has made me feel further from god and sister Alice is like yeah that'll happen every time you have a doubt you do take a step further from god but yeah. you do it in his service yeah and like that also really stuck out stuck that stuck out to me this time especially in regards to that last line of saying i have such doubts of just being like do i always need to be this like lone ranger who must sacrifice all of their personal connections on this planet in order to like do what is right and good yeah i do feel further from god i feel further from the simple life that i like kind of wanted in which like i have a religious society that gives me like purpose and meaning and and community and instead i'm like the lone wolf yeah but i think it's the godly thing to do the irony is that the easier thing is usually not the right thing and it just get but but in a snowball effect by not doing the right thing earlier it just makes it harder down the line and you keep on and people will keep on choosing to do the easy thing and it just leads to further complications right if everyone would kind of buckle down do what was correct earlier we would have fewer repercussions in the future and it would be easier to do the the right thing down the line. But it keeps getting harder because there are still people who will always go with what is best for them. And that's something that Aloysius even accuses Sister James of because, again, Sister James then tries to flip the conversation Aloysius about these accusations and because Sister James doesn't make the accusation. She sees something and she says something. And Aloysius here's all she needs to hear to know what happened. And James doesn't want to believe it's true. And she points the finger at Aloysius saying, you just don't like Father Flynn and you're letting that make you believe something terrible. And Aloysius comes back at her and she says, you just want peace and order because you want to go back to like your Disney life rather than understand that terrible things happen in the world and in this school. And it's up to us to fix it because no one else will. Right. And they're in a way they are both right. Would Aloysius be so easy to jump to this conclusion if she didn't already dislike father flynn but then what we learn is he says like what made you so certain that i was a bad person from the get-go like before this like you didn't like me before any of this ever happened what was it that did it for you and ultimately it's a lot of tiny things that makes aloysius understand it's like it's the small things that you have to keep an eye out to go like that's weird that's weird and the but the, the inciting incident for her was also a small thing and she says to him it was the first day of school and you went up to one of our young male students and like i guess like touched him on the knee or something it was and his he, wrist he like his touched, wrist. she like grabbed his wrist and she like jerked he, away in a he very immediately, like yeah, he, yeah. He, he he didn't just like jump he like threw it away from him that and that was just like this kid's gut impulse from being touched by this man and he's like 
what the fuck does that mean? That's nothing. I took yeah, him by surprise. Yeah, I just I, touched a guy. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I touched exactly. the student and and he got defensive and was taken by surprise. And she's and she's like, no. The fa-, she's like, and you and I both know that it's more than that. And yes. it's yeah, it's and it's again it, like it, I now that I'm getting older and I'm turning into my mom <laughs> in so many ways, but just like being older too, like. When I first read, I remember I read this play probably shortly after it was published, probably like in the year like 2006. Yeah. I remember I was reading it around the same time I was reading Proof because I started, I joined an acting class for teenagers that was like, quote unquote, serious. It was like, we're going to take this really seriously. No kid plays. Yeah. Fun. Whatever. I, I did. I, I was in, I was in something similar. I actually got to do the prior Harper scene from Angels at the age uh, of 17. I would have died to do that. I, I did um the... I did a, the Catherine Hal scene where she has that monologue about how she found all her dad's notebooks and stuff. I don't know. I loved it. I felt so important. Yeah, like, I st- I actually need to go watch Proof because I've I haven't even read it. I've seen girls do monologues from it. Sorry, I've seen women do monologues from it, <laughs> but I've never actually watched it. And I was gonna possibly cover Proof on here because it's. I love Proof. I'll come back for Proof. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. It depends on if I can't get other shows covered because I've been having trouble getting people to. Say I thought yes, you were going to say it depends on if I can't get other girls to come in and talk about proof. <laughs> no. Well, I originally wanted you to do what the Constitution means to me. And then you did a hard pivot and you're like, let's do doubt. I was like, OK, that sounds like more fun anyway. I, I Well, OK, full disclosure. It's because I was thinking about um, Philip Seymour Hoffman because we had just we have just passed his uh, the anniversary of his passing. We uh-huh. like, the, the, the date was around there. And I saw a video of just like clips from his performances it basically made to be like look at this unbelievable indelible mark on acting and there were clips from doubt and i was like oh let's watch doubt that's how i ended up like let's do some dude uh but that said like there are there are certain shows that i'm trying to cover like for colored girls and uh oddly enough once on this island that like no one wants to touch and yeah sounds like the best show of all time well I have a lot of white guests who are like, I don't think that's right for me to cover. I'm like, it's written by white people. Like, it's it's fine. And it's, like, not really about race. It's the Little Mermaid set in the Caribbean. Like, this, it's fine. It's about trees. It's about, it's about a tree. It's about right. a tree. And mosquitoes. But that's to say... Uh, there are some shows that might end up getting switched out. I have Most of the shows I have covered. Uh, but I have, like, two or three shows that are get finding trickiness with so i don't know maybe i'll switch for colored girls out and be like ali gordon come back and talk about proof uh but anyway you're saying you were doing the serious acting class at like 16 17 and that's when you read doubt and and that's when i read doubt and i at the time i was like wow this play is so crazy because i do have doubt at the end of it and now that i'm older i'm like oh yeah no if i saw a kid react like that when an adult touched them i would have the exact same fucking thought but it's because i'm older and like when i was 16 i didn't necessarily have that experience of the world yet and now as a person who's like you know functioned in the world for 30 odd years i also know what it's like to get on a subway car and without any provocation go I can't sit over there. That person's looking at me weird. And I go to the other side. And like yep. I, my my senses are honed in a way that they weren't when I was 16, nor should they be because when you're 16, you're just fucking growing. And yeah. like you're supposed to learn about the world. And it makes me sad when I see students who are who have those walls up so firmly already at that age because it means something's happened, which really yeah. is sad. And so like I just had a totally different experience reading this play as an older person because 
my first experience hearing that all she needed to start this campaign against him was the way one kid yanked his arm back. I was like, oh, interesting. I thought she had concrete proof. And now yeah. I'm like, that was concrete proof. <laughs> but that's, totally sold. Like, that's how the mothers right? of the world. That's how the mothers of the world walk out of that show every night and go, he did it. Yeah, because exactly. all the mothers of the world are like, you know, I get that. I see that because it's people who have not either experienced that kind of trauma or are not in touch with finding the uh, microcosms to look out for. will look at that moment and be like, that's silly. Why would you do that? But those of us who know to recognize the microaggressions because they ultimately will lead you to a path of greater transgressions, understand like that is. That is some that is something real. For a child who doesn't know this man to have like their immediate reaction be an a, a pull away. I mean, it's sort of like the like you know, how like bees and dogs can smell fear. Like children who have been who are who've not really been out in the world yet, but can sense danger. Like that child just sensed something. And what this what this father does with Donald, the lone black student, is he he locates a vulnerable lone wolf with no support system, no support system in the school who's already being kicked and weakened. And he takes him in. And if this were a kinder story, it would be him giving him the tools to grow and be better and stronger and, you know, be able to survive in this school. And there's, it's entirely possible. He does give him some of those things. Well, the part that I think is very, interesting and was a very I I thought it was a very respectable move on the part of the playwright as far as like adding some complication is that at first when Sister Aloysius is like is Donald being bullied Sister James is like no and she's like he's our first black student he's getting bullied whether or not you realize it or not and she's like I swear like he doesn't seem to have a lot of friends but he doesn't seem like he's being targeted or singled out And that's because he has the protection of Father Flynn because Father Flynn has taken him under his wing. And so the other kids aren't going to go corner him and, you know, beat him up or something like that. If even if that's something they wanted to do before, because they know they're getting in trouble with the the priest and that's not what they're going to do. Yeah. So it's this weird two pronged thing where like he is protecting him in a way. He's also absolutely and totally violating him. But like he's this kid is in such a vulnerable position that he can seem like a savior to him by offering him this protection. And the protection is real. It's not it even a lie. Like it's not even him being like, Hey, stick with me, kid. And I'll make sure kids don't bother to bother you. It, that's true. It, it does come to fruition. He does quote unquote, protect him from this possibility. Did you, but did you see it, or read how I learned to drive? Yes. Okay. Uh, it would, that would, first of all, Incredible play, one of my favorite uh, Pulitzer winners of like the last 40 years. But I connected very deeply to it because the relationship that Lilbit has with her uncle uh, is very similar to the man who, you know, groomed me in high school in the sense of like, it is a person of who is older, has some authority, who recognizes your isolation from the pack that you're in. Like Lilbit's family does not get her. None of them right. read. They're not intellectual. And they're able to say that you are special and they're able to say and not that only, but, you are not being appreciated in the right way and I can appreciate you in the right way. But also gives you things that actually help you. So like with Lilbit's uncle, he like gives her books to read and, and uh, helps motivate her to apply for college and like all these things that 
help her grow as a as an as an adult, which adds to the complications of the trauma and the violations because they're both tied to one person. And it's like, right. well, I do have all these things that I'm grateful for that have made me a better person, but they're also tied to things that have stunted me in a lot of other ways. And so, yeah, with Donald, he gets the protection from Father Flynn, while also having a major violation happened to him and he has no support from anywhere else because as we learn from the scene with his mother so Aloysius calls upon Donald's mother to come into the school thinking that she will then have an advocate with her to take down Father Flynn and oh boy is she wrong right but it's 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 an again it's a really amazing scene writing wise and like empathy wise on the part of John Patrick Shanley because like it's not what you want you have this spectator fantasy that sister aloysius is going to say i think your son is being targeted and uh and sexually preyed upon at school and the mom's going to be like let's get him and instead yeah. she's like we just have to last till june and yep. you are so stunned at first because you you want things to be simple you want things to be righteous you want things to be have a clear path forward but instead we find out that um this that potentially changing schools would potentially wreck this family socioeconomically. It's a school where he's not being physically targeted and he doesn't have that promise at another school. Also, the mother suspects that their son is gay and has had problems at last schools where students have targeted him for that on top of his skin color. Yeah, And so, like, he's just in a – he is truly between a rock and a hard place. There is no real winning for this family because, like, not only is there the inequities of, like, being this woman in this male-dominated whatever, then you get to add on another level of, like, like what if – it's not just race. It's not just – um, socioeconomic status. It's not just, you know, sex, gender, whatever you want to blah, blah, blah. It's like when all of those things converge in an intersectional way, it like makes it so much messier. And there's like no real correct answer because like when you are under the thumb of so many different kinds of oppression, like even getting out, even clawing out one direction only makes the weight heavier on another direction. Yeah. Mixed metaphor. Sorry about that. But like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's so interesting that Sister Aloysius is like, it sucks being a woman in this in this uh, convent because I don't have respect. And then she's like, and then, you know, you you meet Donald's mother and it's like, yeah, well, how about all these other things, too? Yeah. Because even if we get what we want and this father goes away, what about all the other things that are like pressing down on me and my family? Like, there's no winning here. Like, yeah, you can't she... expect me to tell you how to win this. There's no winning. She so again, they the question keeps coming back to like well why don't we ask donald and aloysius says we won't do that he'll protect you because you've been protecting him it's embarrassing for the child to have to discuss this he's the only black student here like we're not we're not putting that pressure on the on the boy and it is sort of a double-edged sort of like she is thinking about donald's mental health of like let's not confront him with this but also she knows she won't get what she wants if they confront him which is why she kind of has always has to throw the rule back out and i think she also she calls on donald's mother Partly because it's the right thing to do, but also because she does think she's going to get a partner in crime about this. I'll talk to his mother. When she finds out how her son's being violated, she's going to go into mama bear mode and together we will take down Father Flynn. And as you mentioned, that is not what happens because whereas Sister Aloysius has tried to – she, in a weird way, we see her try to do to Donald's mother what Father Flynn does to Sister James and fail at it. Of like try, She tries to be like, let's connect as women. Let's connect as two people who care about the well-being of this child. And the Donald's mother is like, you don't know what it's like for me every day. You don't know what we have to go through. And 
you know, Father Flynn originally says the reason why Donald had wine on his breath was that the janitor caught him drinking and I took him into the office and scolded him and said, I won't take you off of, you know, the altar boys if it never happens again. But like, I'm going to be watching you. And eventually Aloysius uh, finds out from the janitor, like, that's not really the sequence of events. What happened was like the janitor saw Donald after the fact and also smelled the wine on his breath and assumed he was drinking beforehand, but like never actually saw him drinking and told Father Flynn. Uh, And so when Donald's mother tells her, yes, you know, eventually it had to come out that Donald drank from uh, drank the altar wine and got taken off of altar boys and his father beat him that night. Eventually it's revealed that that's not why Donald was beaten by his father. It's because uh, both of Donald's parents have the suspicions that Donald is probably gay. And it's, as you said, like he was targeted for that at his last school. And that is why his father not only beat him that night, but has beaten him other nights of trying to toughen him up, making him more of a man. And in their very limited 1960s America Catholic way, you know, the idea of, Donald possibly being gay is already kind of shameful enough. But when when Sister Aloysius says he has your son and Donald's mother shouts, let him have him. Yeah. She says it sort of in a multitude of, of ways. Viola Davis says it sort of like in an angry way. I remember she like kind of shouts like, let him have him. And then I remember Adrian Lennox says it kind of sort of helplessly. She's like, I don't know. Let him have him. Uh, like my son has no protection anywhere else, not at home, not in school. This one man who has authority cares about him. Who actually, I don't care why. And like, we are in survival mode. Donald has to make it to the end of the year. Cause then he will go off to high school. And you know, from here he can go to, he can go to a good high school. And if he maintains his grades, he is a good student. He can be the first man in our family to go to college and he can actually make something of himself she's like it's right. all worth it if he makes something of himself and aloysius is like is it though your son is going to have this like trauma on him forever right. and- but it's also like that thing of like even if it's like well-intentioned in some way or another of like a mother's love of just being like all he has to do is suffer through this for six months and then he can have a better life forever and like this might even be terrible Maybe I can even admit that this is wrong and terrible, but it's temporary because a good life will be permanent. Like you can understand where like the mother's love part of that comes in, even if you disagree. But then there's also that thing on top of it of like, does she see him being gay as a perversion when there's like this like Catholic way? Does he see, does she assume that? he and father Flynn share this same perversion. And so they're actually allies to each other. And it's not a horribly manipulative thing where the priest is completely preying upon an innocent boy who shouldn't be in this position, but that because they're both potentially maybe gay, they like share a thing that she doesn't understand. So no. it's more mature that, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm I, sure you No, I think it's sure absolutely heard people say things like that before. We're like, because they assume they like equate gay with being perverse. Yeah. The whole pedophilia thing goes out the window because they're like, no, 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 it's just gay. Yeah. Do you know what and I mean? Like, like, like that you forget I, the power imbalance thing too. Like it's, it's the same thing as in, um, again, uh, how I learned to drive when, uh, little bit's aunt, her like biological aunt, who's married to her uncle is talking to the audience. And her viewpoint is that little bit is, has been seducing her uncle this entire time. That like right. their connection is not a grown man preying on a child. It is two. It's 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 a broken man 
and a more mature than she lets on child, you know, having this connection that is wrong, but she blames the victim just as much as, you know, anyone uh, as everyone else would blame the predator. Um, it's also in Blackbird. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the play Blackbird. Blackbird. I don't think I have. It was Allison Pill and Jeff Daniels off Broadway, then Michelle Williams and Jeff Daniels on Broadway. And it was uh, like a 20 something year old woman uh, tracks down this like 50 something year old man in his office. And like they go into a conference room in his office when, when everyone else has gone for the day. And they basically rehash the fact that like 20 years prior, eh, no, I guess 15 years prior, they had had a sexual relationship when she was. 12 about to be 13 and he was like 35 Mm -hmm. and she was the daughter of his landlord and uh they connected and then they ended up running off together but then like he left her because he realized he was she was too afraid that people were going to find out about what was going on with them and left her and then she had to call the cops so her father could get her and then he got arrested all these years but when he was brought in front of the judge instead of getting a life sentence he got like three years in prison because from all the facts of the story the judge determined that what had actually happened was that she was more sexually and mentally advanced as a 13-year-old. So it, even though it was legally pedophilia and statutory rape, right? could understand how this- Her intent was blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. She totally. was seducing this 30-something-year-old man, and he was weak and vulnerable. And, you know, we will not punish him the rest of his life for this. He will go away right. for a year or two and then go away. And it's like, hmm. No, mm. I mean, like, and that's so, that's, like, so real. Like, you yeah. can read about that happening anywhere at any well, this, time. And this is what anywhere. Donald's mother is kind of implying, which says, I think my son, my, maybe my son is this way. And she doesn't say it out loud, but it is this implication of, like, you know, we we all have our thoughts on sort of this way, being Catholic in the 1960s in America, which is to say none of them think highly of it. And if it is this kind of perversion, like, Whatever happens behind closed doors is none of my business. It's wrong anyway, so it might as well be wrong with someone who's... Right. It's wrong. It would be wrong if it was a kid his age. It would be wrong if it's this priest. It would be wrong if he were older and, like, not... Right, exactly. So, like, who cares? And the ends will justify the means. He will be protected till the end of the year. He will go to a good school and have a good life. And it's all going to be fine. We just have to make it through. And, what like, just sort of whatever it takes, whatever it takes. And it is that survivor mode. And, again, of, like, repressing the trauma in order to get further along. But if you aren't acknowledging the wrongdoings early on, the repercussions are just going to get worse down the road. So maybe Donald will get to go to a good college and get a degree, but he is going to have mental issues for the rest of his life because of what went down and because no one properly helped him heal through right. it. Right. I've been like, and also like uh, being a product of its time, like I really don't think the overwhelming opinion psychologically speaking was that like these are scars that these kids will try will carry no no one's thinking about it's like no one's thinking about that that's like a very modern understanding of this kind of trauma and and like coercion and stuff like that like most people are just sort of like well that sucked yeah suck it up bucko and get back out there or that thing of like that polite sort of like um Let's not talk about that ever again, and let's just make sure that that doesn't affect us going forward. Because that that sucked, but it's over now. So let's let's just as a family never acknowledge that that ever happened. Yes. Um. And yeah, people still do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But like, it certainly is like we we definitely have more of a societal understanding of power imbalances and like lasting emotional trauma. Yeah. Uh, now, how that affects people on like a 
familial level will probably differ from family to family but like uh, at least like in the grand umbrella of like society we have a much different understanding than we did in 1964 (laughs) you don't say (laughs) okay thanks just just trying to give a little context to our gen z listeners out there i assume you have some I assume I don't know who listens to this podcast. It's I have people who will like reach out to me and I'll go, oh, that's fun. But uh, I'm always surprised when it's like wildly different ages. Uh, actually, I do know that I have Gen Zers. I do know that. I do know yeah. that for a fact. I just like I teach teenagers and I am quite consistently surprised by one, the maturity and like understanding and empathy levels of like current day teenagers in terms of like being socially open-minded but also as sort of the like flip side of that how little sometimes they understand how different it was even like a decade ago oh yeah oh yeah i literally just watched a video essay on youtube about the birdcage uh which love yeah first of all yes you and i both love that movie very much uh and i have always maintained that it holds up incredibly well mm-hmm. uh like it's it is all it is also the best version of that story of the lacage i agree of, of the play the musical the french film i think it is absolutely the best one um and the video essay really kind of talks about how yet it like it already holds up today like just watching it with the with the uh care and understanding and the humanity that those creatives had at the time in the 90s helps keep that movie evergreen but it's especially important for young viewers to watch it, understanding where the world was at in 1996 when it was made. Why, like, certain events in the story are actually very plausible in 1996 as opposed to now. Like, Gen Z would watch the movie and be like, well, why wouldn't they just be upfront about it from the get-go? Like, who right, like exactly. who cares? Fuck those conservatives. Like, why should they lie? And it's like, eh, you do have to understand sort of, like, what queer life was still considered of in the 1990s, how it was even considered 15 years ago. Like, it's so crazy to think, you know, like, 12 years ago, Drag was very much like a a, a, a not contact sport. It was not considered cool. <laughs> it was not considered sport. Yeah, it was not considered cool. Not considered glamorous. It, it we really can't emphasize enough the cultural impact that drag race has had on drag culture. It is now considered a viable career and and a and a pathway to fame. Mm-hmm. And it's on and it's the same thing of queer culture, like. 10 years ago 15 years ago like it it has the queer community has become much more prominent in the world and our uh and and the public perception has shifted exponentially since the mid 90s but it's i mean it, it it cannot be emphasized enough how works like the birdcage and drag race really do kind of help impact those sort of things because in at the time the doubt takes place there were no such things we didn't even have the boys in the band yet which came out in 1969, which was one of oh, the first, wow. which was one of the first major uh, artistic works about queer life. And Boys in the Band is not a happy representation. It, right, the, right. the Boys in the Band is basically saying like, "Oh yeah, you married people think that you know who's afraid of Virginia Woolf is relatable." Like, well, guess what? We have our own who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Like, we are just as unhappy as the rest of you. And when did Harvey Firestein write Torch Song trilogy? Because I know you just talked about it. Early 80s. Uh, so Torch Song Trilogy had a three-year journey. Uh, the play premiered on Broadway in, I believe, the summer of 82, maybe summer of 81, summer of 82, but he wrote the first act. He wrote International Stud in 79, and then, yeah, it was 82, because it was 79 was International Stud, 1980 was, uh, 
Fugit and Ursary, and then 81 was uh, Widows and Children first, and then someone was like, hey, let's put all three together, and that became Torch Song Trilogy, and then that was uh, off-off Broadway, then it moved to the Actors Playhouse, I think February of 82, and then moved to Broadway in July of 82. Do you, this is a loaded question, because it Give me that load, Allie. Do you feel, here comes the load, <laughs> do you feel that film was ahead of theater in portraying like the interior lives of queer people? No. Or do you think theater was ahead of film? Theater was ahead of film, 1000%. What about like something like Midnight Cowboy being in 1969 though? Midnight Cowboy isn't really a representation of queer life and the little bits of queer life that is in there is looked at as a bit of a perversion like john yes, Boy getting... like don't you feel that at the end of the movie that what you are meant to feel leaving it is that it's not a perversion and that it's like it's like a it's, it would have been these men's savior like that if they, if they were able to embrace something like this they would have not been in the situation <sighs> that they were sorry again this is a really loaded question yeah but like <sighs> i think honestly it has been it's been a second since i watched midnight cowboy so like I remember just most of the gay men in that re- in that movie being referred to as fags, and I remember Bob Balaban blowing John Voight in the theater and then immediately throwing up afterwards. I, which I I I always was confused as to how that happened. It was because John Voight was simply so hung that it like ruined Bob Balaban's gag reflex. I mean, that is what you're supposed to believe. You're supposed to believe this guy is mega hung. Yeah, and so yeah, Bob Balaban just couldn't handle all of it and had to throw up uh i don't know perhaps i'm taking this too far no, off but no but of course but like no, i don't know we'll bring it back to donald but uh no i don't i think theater was ahead of film very much so i think the because with theater the ball was able to roll a lot faster uh we because there's been queer representation on stage even if it was coded since the 40s uh right um god what's his face Court Jester, uh, Danny, Danny Kay. Danny Kay and Lady in the Dark is one of the earliest documented cases of a queer character in a Broadway show, even if it's not outwardly said that he's queer. Oh, yeah. And also, of course, um, oh, my God, the the play with the women. Oh, my God. The play with there's the like women? Un- the, yeah, there's a really famous lesbian play. That, like, oh, gets- uh, Children's Hour. Thank you. Yes, yes. Thank you. Yes. Children's Hour. Uh the, like those all started and and it all kind of culminated in the end of the 60s with uh boys in the band and hair uh being like main not mainstream but like popular works in new york that had queer characters and then it got even further with the chorus line which became an, a national sensation and had a very openly gay had a couple of openly gay characters in it one of whom was sort of like the gateway drug for a lot of straight audience to be like oh my god that poor soul right uh, with, with that for him yeah exactly. his family connection it's i would because you can you can very much pinpoint all the major stepping stones in broadway where like queer representation just like added another brick to being an acceptable uh story for audiences right. and, and Harvey it all Fire- culminated of course with smile of course, yes. Everyone saw Smile and they're the like, vehicle. I'm gay now. Smile, <laughs> exactly. Smile and Evita just turned people gay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, because then we have Torch Song and then we have the musical version of Lacage, uh, which I don't really think brought much insight into queer culture so much as it just like showed Broadway you can have a gay story be profitable and also which, happy and happy. You know yeah, I mean? like, that's, that's that's a big thing because like like the point of that is that 
they are, are in this healthy, long-lasting relationship that went through a little rocky patch due to all of these good easy stuff. But like at the end, they walk off sand, like hand in hand, song in the sand, reprise. So they're yeah, in and, love. No, and nobody dies. I'm trying like there aren't a lot of queer stories in theater and also in film that are like our pure joy. Yeah. Uh, usually there's like some kind of heartbreak in there, some trauma. and But also I think that's because a lot of the queer journey does involve trauma. It's about how you sort of persevere and continue to find the joy. And now we're getting a lot of queer works that are sort of flavorless, which I accept just because like the more stories we have, the better it is. But like, you know, like the Love Simons where... You know, I know a lot of people were pissed off that Love, Simon came out. They're like, we're not just like you. Fuck off. I'm like, listen, it's good that queer people have our own boring high school movie, you know? Yeah, some for, it, it, sometimes I think people need to realize that um, you need to take a step back and sometimes go, is this bad or am I not the intended audience? Yeah, I think well, people and- don't ask themselves that enough because you might not be a 14-year-old boy. <laughs> and you yes. might just like need to be like, hey, well, I talked maybe about you're this- not a 14-year-old boy. Maybe this one's not. For you. We're not Catholic nuns. We don't know that doubt is for us. But we exactly. I, I mentioned this in the Love Valor Compassion episode, and I'll sort of bring it up again for a second, and then we'll go back fully, fully to doubt. Uh it's getting we're kind of coming back around it in the way that, you know, all public perception does like these pendulum swings, but queer audiences are getting a little bit better now at understanding that not every movie or play that comes out has to perfectly represent their lives as a gay man. And thus, they don't have to come out and try to cancel it or, like, have a hot take of, like, here's why this thing is problematic. This weirdly comes back to what I was saying earlier of, like, my enjoyment of Strange Loop wasn't that it was so universal that, oh, my gosh, even I can see myself in this story. I don't. But thank you for an honest representation of your fucking life. I learned something. It was enjoyable. You are clearly making exactly what you wanted to make in a way that was not um, constrained by some other shitty people being like, I don't like that part. Take that part out. It was like somebody being like, this is what I wanted to make. This is exactly what I wanted to say. This is the language I wanted to use. And I wanted to use it in this way specifically. And I'm going to fucking do it. And that's why like, I loved it so much. I like was very moved by it, but not because I was like, I did that too. That's my life. This was for me. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think you absolutely are in with Daddy from Strange Loop. I don't see how you don't see yourself in that. Thank you so much. (laughs) You're very welcome. Uh, No, you you know, absolutely. I think that there's power in stories that we immediately identify with, power in stories that we don't identify with, but can still take catharsis from anyway, empathy from, and and also just like the power of a good story of, of of enjoying a work that is well made and inventive and and new. There was a time with gay audiences because our stories were so rare that when something came out and was good, we came out in droves to support it. So like part of the reason why Torch Song Trilogy blew up was because uh gay audiences ran to see it off Broadway and then ran to see it on Broadway. Love Valor Compassion you know, was a hit because the gay audiences supported it so in full. And that helped straight audiences come in and see it as well because that became like the hot ticket for a minute. And then I guess it was post-Milk where this really started to happen, where like movies or plays would come out and it's like, well, that's not my story. And not, and not only that, like if it was about a gay white person, it became like, well, we need more BIPOC stories. And like, first of all, we always need more BIPOC stories. That's never in doubt. Uh, that's never in doubt a parable. Doubt a parable. But, <laughs> yeah, it's never in doubt a parable. But like, I remember one of the major issues people had with the inheritance was that it was about like wealthy white people, white gays. And I was like, and 
I was like, well, first of all, it's based off of Howard's End. So the only way you can make Howard's End work as a modern day story is if some of these characters have money. Because uh, that's just... Right. That's yeah, like, like what has to be the base reality. Exactly. Like you can't do a modern Pride, Pride and Prejudice without having Darcy be rich. I'm so sorry. Just it's part of the, the fabric of the story. But uh, I remember like Matthew Lopez was asked about this. Like, do you agree with the criticisms about this? He's like, first of all, he's like, I'm a latin gay man it should be like everyone should be supportive enough that like i was able to get a play on broadway like that doesn't happen often he goes and on top of that he's like i shouldn't have to uh write a story that relates to everyone i should write the story that i think matters that i can make good and hopefully people enjoy it and not take it as a political it's about me moment and maybe he's like and i hope that it inspires then a writer to write their journey and then we do get like 10 more BIPOC gay stories next year and then 20 more the year after that. And we can, and I've said we should always look at these things as part of a tapestry of storytelling, right? Like not each story is representative of everyone. Each story on its own comes together to, you know, show different elements of every community. And to be fair, a lot of gay audiences over time, we take a step back like two years later of the thing coming out and be like, oh, I can now recognize that Love, Simon is connected to Milk, which is connected to Brokeback Mountain, which is connected to the Birdcage, totally, totally, which is connected totally. to Boys in the Band. The tapestry. Completely. Yes, it's all the tapestry. Um, Down a Parable is connected to The Flying Nun. Wow. Billy, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow collar. You're the top. You're a Coolidge dollar. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you look at John Patrick Shanley's contribution to the American theater, you know, doubt is a big one because yeah. it won a Pulitzer Prize. But like, it's not um, it's not his greed against religion or his um admission of what happened in his childhood. You know what I mean? Like it's just it's just one installation in his ongoing career. Yeah. And so I'm always sort of hesitant to be like, what does this play say about you specifically? What are you trying to make me be- you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes sometimes a playwright just writes a really good play. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> it is, I think, one of the more personal plays in his life. Cause I mean Shanley's career is weird. I was looking at it. I was like, what made John Patrick Shanley blow up? And there were two things that really did it. And then he never kind of captured it again for a while until that because he, Danny in the Deep Blue Sea was like his big off-Broadway like. Talk about scenes you did in college, baby. Wow. Every, Danny in the Deep Blue Sea. Oh, everyone does Danny in the Deep Blue Sea. I hate but, that. Sorry. Sorry to, sorry to this man, but I, I am not about Danny in the Deep Blue Sea. I'm not either, but I also don't know if that's just overexposure from bad high school college acting. I but I, I don't think it's all that very it good. Was, 
but that was sort of the thing that kind of I don't want to say launched him because it's not like he became this prominent playwright after that came out, but like he was able to get more works produced after that. But, and he had one play that I ran for like six months. I can't remember the name of it, but he never had like a huge, huge theater success where everyone was like, what's the next Shanley going to be? It was, he just, he all of a sudden like became established in the theater community, but always like all these off Broadway plays. And I think he wrote one movie and then he wrote, Moonstruck and Moonstruck yes. won him the Oscar and was like a ginormous hit. And Moonstruck is great. It's one of my favorite rom coms. Oh, because hell yeah. It's it's such an unconventional rom com. It's like all these people who should never all these characters who have no business business being in a romantic comedy. And that's what makes it so special. It's all these characters who like should be in every other genre but a rom-com and they I mean, somehow... the other thing that's fun about john patrick shanley is his sort of like uh, love and insistence on all of his uh protagonists sort of being these bizarre new yorkers which like i obviously feel yeah an emotional connection to like almost all of his plays take place in the bronx or have a character that is from the bronx because or brooklyn is in the bronx yeah. or brooklyn but like you know moonstruck is like brooklyn but also like Doubt takes place in the Bronx. Yeah. Um. Then the the protagonist character in Prodigal Son, he's in private school in New Hampshire, but he's from the Bronx, so that's why he's like the weird, rough and tumble weirdo. Yeah. I don't know. There's just like a lot of. It, it kind of reminds me of a. Uh, um. Oh my gosh, he's another three named playwright, Stephen Adley Gerges. His insistence on like he really loves characters who are city folk. He also likes people who are dealing with the complications of like poverty. I don't know. Yeah. Just, like there's like there's like a similar thing there of like no, this is the community I want to represent. These are the people I find interesting. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, so doubt is not necessarily biographical, or if it is, he hasn't said as much. But it is the most of his life that he has put into a play. Yeah. Because of his upbringing, like of and he even said Aloysius is no. James, Sister James is based off of like his favorite teacher from uh, Catholic school. And I'm sure it's like also based on a lot of stuff that he experienced uh, or saw people experience, which is probably why it is his most successful play, because it's the things you take from your life that you put into your work. So like the way I described it, like when I was writing mine was, you know, you get it out all, all on the page first. That makes it therapeutic. You then start giving it perspectives from other characters that makes it cathartic. And then you give it a structure and theatricality and that's what makes it dramatic and so it's not like oh how good of a playwright can he be if he just wrote what happened it's like no no no. he had to also give it perspective and and structure and that's what makes him a good writer it also allows him to heal as a human being by taking things from his life that maybe were not super great like for example paula vogel with how i learned to drive literally taking what happened to her and making it this incredible play uh but like he i i give him respect for taking the people he knew and giving them a voice and giving them a good voice because yeah. because it's one thing to just be like slanderous of oh, this person wronged me in my childhood fuck them i'm gonna put them in a plan have everyone hate them it's like no he still gives them edge which is what makes his writing uh fascinating I, yeah the, I, and he makes the 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 priest character so likable which is why it's so one believable that he can get away with what he gets away with if we are to believe he's getting away with what he's getting away with but also like you see him as this like real figure that people in the community would exalt and be like i love his sermons i think he's such a you know what i'm saying like yeah. it's it's better writing to make him funny and charming and 
good at his job and makes the boys laugh when he's teaching them how to play basketball. Like, like it's, it's better, it's better, more mature writing, even if it is or isn't autobiographical to have this concept of the world in which people are multifaceted. Yeah. Like it's, it's just, I don't know. I guess what I'm saying is it's a good play. (laughs) It is a good play. Yeah. It's, it's so much easier if he were a true wolf, but he is, uh, what was it that Katy Perry said about Taylor Swift? She's like Regina George in lamb's clothing or something like that. I I have to be honest. I'm not a big um, follower of the words of Katy Perry. I'm not entirely sure I have this scripture written down. So, Alessandra, you, you, did, like you did not go see Moulin Rouge and go, oh, yes, the poet laureate Katy Perry has been quoted in Moulin Rouge. She did you, ask quite do you earnestly, ever... do you ever feel like a plastic bag? And I thought, yes. <laughs> I, I, don't, do. I don't think anyone understands what not understanding the genre is unless you've seen ko stare in the mirror coughing up blood from her uh tuberculosis grabbing her face like she's in mother courage and going do you ever feel like Like a plastic plastic bag bag. which also and begs the question what is plastic because there was no plastic in moulin rouge at the time would love to know what she thinks plastic is (laughs) <laughs> in some ways what's her name Satine Satine yeah in some ways she's the greatest thinker of our generation because she did invent mixed plastics like, she knew she figured she it out recyclables the tragedy is that she died before she could actually exactly invent it. while she was dying in his arms she was like <clears throat> plastic he's like what <laughs> plastic it's the way of the future Christian yes we're gonna keep plastic bags inside of plastic bags under your sink and he's like I don't know what you're talking about and she's like you'll know in the future no, the inciting incident of Christian and Satine meeting is not that they fall in love. It's that K.O. saw Aaron Tveit on stage and she looked at his face and she went, plastic. And she plastic. said, I think that's the way of the future. Wow. I'm glad you got one good read in because I know that I knew that every episode isn't complete without you just <laughs> getting one nice little jab in. <laughs> on on Tveit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, whatever. I mean, well, um, wait, imagine, we, imagine like... Tveit playing Father Flynn. What would that be like? bad sorry (laughs) well well with a blank slate like that the audience could truly ask themselves did he do it though i can't imagine someone that dull would molest a child (laughs) or like was somebody there i don't remember a person (laughs) imagine if annalee ashford were sister aloysius uh no i won't actually imagine any of that can't do it what was so we talked a bit about like things that took us both by surprise watching it on tape seeing like great actors do it and and you know getting all that i understand why doubt won the the tony for best play and why they won director and actress and supporting actress for adrian lennox uh like i i get all that i understand i still maintain it should have been pillow man for play that is just me but that's also like where my taste goes like i know so many people i know so many people who just don't get mcdonough and don't get his tone don't get his um his acidity like i was very pissed off at the backlash of three billboards a few years ago because it just came from people who were not who just didn't get how he writes comedy and because mm-hmm. he because uh mcdonough is, what he does is he finds the toxicity of mankind the monstrosities that we are capable of and he's like let me show you how this can also be humorous yes so he's not advocating for the for what people say or what they do. He's just like, people can be awful and crazy. The magic trick is I'm going to make you laugh at it. But um, 
Pillow Man is sort of him at his absolute best, in my opinion, which is that. Do you like, think they'll ever make Pillow Man a movie? Do you think they'll ever adapt it? They could try. I really don't think. I know it's it's so right for the stage. It's it was yeah. like born to be on stage. So absolutely, I'm not. I am not one of those people who's pro putting everything into a movie. But yeah, I, I wonder if um, what's the name of the guy who did Hereditary and Midsommar? Ari Aster. I I would be interested to see how he would adapt Pillow Man for film. Yeah, something strange yeah, or what's I, his name who who okay what's the guy who did annihilation and ex machina and men oh him i don't know but yes i know who you're talking about Ugh. or actually no, no i know i take that name? back i would be interested in uh jordan peele's adaptation of pillow man because that'd be fierce somebody it has to be someone who understands how to build tension someone who can think outside the box but also someone who will not just do crazy for craziness sake like is understands when restraint is necessary yeah because pillow man has some craziness in it but like you can't go wacky and wild all the time that that play is a miracle because you will laugh one second and then the next second be gasping for breath yeah. uh and doubt like i was invested watching it but i really think a lot of it ca- came from the power of those four actors i think the play itself is very strong but I did not walk away blown away from the play. I think there's a lot to recommend it. And there's a lot to learn from Shanley's writing in it. But I I maintain like by the end, especially because like how they marketed it and how they discussed it in interviews of like, you want to walk away with the conversation of like, what really transpired? Who was in the right here? Like what? Yeah. But the older you get, the more you're just like, he's guilty. Yeah. <laughs> like, and the I, conversation and I think, sort of falls away. And I can't tell if like Shanley is aware of just how obvious he made it. Because I read those, I, I watch know. those interviews and I read interviews he talks about it and like I and I watch the movie and see like Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance and like I do think he wants you to have some doubts about it. Just the very fact that none of us saw what happened. And I'm like, but the truth is that Aloysius is onto something where it's not about the concrete big things. It's finding the small things that uh, that determine it for you. Like. In the way that Father Flynn finds the small things to charm his way into Sister James and Donald and the rest of the school, Aloysius finds the small things to give her her certainty, you know? And also, like, if I remember properly, in the movie, they add a couple more things to inspire suspicion in the audience, like, more even than the show. Because I remember in the show, it all is extremely awkward off screen so to speak but in the movie i remember there's like a part where he's like in donald's locker i I don't know it's just all a little more overt because like that's the nature of movies is that like you have to show don't tell whereas in a play you can be like that happened off stage let me talk about it now but like in a movie you can't quite do that and so like i i think the movie is even more on the nose in terms of being like wow that guy is obviously a predator and i also remember the movie doing it Shanley also like does a lot of weird like uh, Dutch angles at things like the phone will ring and it'll be at a Dutch angle. So it's like, ooh, drama. And it's like the phone. Yeah, the <laughs> phone. Um, yeah, like the for me, the tension is not in the play is not about whether he did it or not. The tension is who's going to come out on top in the end. And in the way they in a weird way at the end of the play, they both kind of come out on top because Sister Aloysius gets what she wants in the sense that he's no longer at the school, but he also gets what he wants and he gets to continue yeah, she, doing Her what... spirit is really broken. Yes, he does not get to be removed from the parish. Uh, no one else will ever know why it is that he transferred all these and like he'll- Right, he's just going to keep getting away with it for as long as he wants to get away with yes. it for. But she does get to protect her school. Um, right. 
And that is, and in a, and in a weird way, like Donald and his mom still get to have like Donald be at the school, uh, be, right? Like Donald's still at the school. Yeah, I mean, like that is a big part of two of the scene where Donald's mom is like, then why should my kid have to leave if an adult is doing something wrong? Yeah. And the and Sister Alicia is like, I agree with you. And she's like, okay, so make that happen. And she's like, I don't know if I can. Yeah. It, it might be easier for Donald to leave. And she's yeah. like, no, it's not fair. It's not fair for my kid's life to suffer for the transgressions of an adult. And Sister Alicia is like, I agree with you. I just yeah. don't know what's going to happen there. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So they get what they wanted, so to speak. I don't know. I, yeah. I will agree that like, if I think about myself at the age of 15 and I think about the pillow man and I think about doubt, pillow man made a way bigger impression on me. And it definitely was more of a taste shaper for the rest of my like life. I would say, I think I like doubt more and more as I get older, just because of like the restraint of the writing and the complexity of the characters. And I uh, just like how good, it, how good it is as an actor showcase. Like yeah. he is, he is a playwright who loves actors and is like excited to have actors read his shit. And sometimes you read plays where you're just like, and who's acting this? Like, this is not a play for actors. This was a play yeah. that a playwright wrote and hoped somebody would do it. Like this, these are plays for for fucking actors and i really like love and respect that and so like the older i get i think i appreciate doubt more and more for those reasons yeah um i really do think it's just like a taste thing because i know people who detest pillow man i don't understand them but i know that they exist there are people who detest so i have a friend who detested kimberly akimbo and i'm like i'm sorry you cannot like it but like you he was Detest? like I, he was like i hated it so much it's like how wow. could you it's like how could you absolutely hate that show you cannot like it it cannot be for you but like there's nothing about it that w- that would inspire hatred uh unless you hate joy unless you hate quality <laughs> unless you hate victoria clark i mean she and i have beef but that's between her and i wow yeah she and i is that the correct grammar i don't know I, I didn't have know. a I don't have a sister Aloysius in my life to give me the proper <laughs> grammar i'm a i'm i'm of the jewish persuasion yeah, nobody. Everyone was like, "Here, have ballpoint pens for everyone." You want to know where doubt never would have happened in Hebrew school? Stop. <laughs> never would have happened. I'm just saying. The, the my principal. Not my with my school, not with our Jewish mom was going. Hey, did it? <laughs> yeah. Hey, did it? No. Uh, at my Hebrew school, the principal was in and out of all classrooms, in and out of all like private uh lessons. I we had a female cantor when I was practicing for my bar mitzvah, which I didn't end up doing because I didn't want to do the work and i didn't really believe in religion at that point anyway even at that age uh this was pre-doubt by the way but wow yeah uh i remember like every doubt every like 25 minutes uh the principal would just like come in and be like how's everything going here and i remember thinking it was annoying but looking back i'm like good on her she would never let any adult be alone with a kid at that school for longer than 30 minutes hey yeah and i liked your impression of her how's everything going here how's everything going here with her giant mane of curly hair Wow, she, she was her. She's very hot. She was Cher in Moonstruck meets Sister Aloysius, and it was grand. I am attracted to that that character description. It's a wonderful blend. Uh, <laughs> I'm just thinking like the importance of casting with a show like Doubt, because you, d- if you were to cast Nick Cage as Father Flynn, the moment he begins to sermon, you're the like, the minute he came it? on stage, you'd be like, get him out of here, get, get, him. <laughs> get him out of here. I feel I- unsafe. <laughs> I'm an adult and I feel unsafe. Um, but like you cast like a Norbert Leo Butts in it, who also, by the way, played the uncle in How I Learned to Drive at one point. You know, someone oh, yeah. who is who is charismatic, who is likable, who is someone you just like, you go like, I trust him. And so for then for someone, and then you want to cast someone who everyone hates, like, you know, cast Leah Michelle as Sister Aloysius. And she's like, Stop. I think 
he touched the boy. And everyone's like, go fuck yourself. Yeah, like, shut up. Shut up, Sister Aloysius. You can't read but your Bible. When you were watching it, didn't you think like, oh, these scenes are good. I don't think I I don't think I thought that when I was seeing my college classmates do this. But like now I'm like, damn, that's a great scene. I'd love to act that scene. Didn't you feel name, that way? Name names, Allie. Who in your college were you watching being like, bad job at acting? I have to be honest. I do not remember anymore because like everything blends into one another. I only remember the things that I did really badly at. Like I remember I had to do a scene from Waiting for Lefty, which is like an unbelievable play, but I like could not get the tone and the like, severity of it because I just like don't bring that quality into a room and I remember my teacher at the end of the class being like hey I'm gonna give you a good grade on this because you learned the lines and you worked really hard some genres just aren't for you and I remember being like yeah I understand that I actually thought it was very fair and very um mature discussion (laughs) about a girl's failure in an acting class (laughs) what's it like to fail at acting I've never known that wow maybe you should try scenes from waiting for lefty then (laughs) No, give me Streetcar Named Desire and be like, Matt, you're playing Stanley. I'm like, okay, here we go. Okay. Actually, yeah, and I mean, I... like, you know, next week we did Streetcar Named Desire, not Streetcar Named Desire. We did, um, what's the um, Blue Roses? Glass Blue Menagerie. Roses? Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? I can come on stage and be sad. I, I can, I, you know, I, I, got, I got Laura in the bag, but it yeah. was waiting for Lefty. I was like, not good. My teacher was like, it's okay that you're not good. You can't be good at everything. That's, that's okay. My teacher junior year gave me uh, the Biff and Happy scene from Death of a Salesman because he thought that I would fall flat on my face. And the fact that I only fell onto my knees really disappointed him. See, I, I actually like, think that's a, that's a good role for you. Well, now because I'm jacked, but at the time I was skinny and Jewish. But he and <laughs> and I just would walk around all the time like Roger and American Dad. I'd just be like, I'm Biff. I I want to play with the horses on the farm. But <laughs> my arms are up here. <laughs> Shut your mouth, you stupid bitch. But uh, I just I remember him like giving me and my other classmate that scene because we were both screaming queens, and we did our first go of it a few weeks later, and he was like, "Huh, I really thought you guys would like." truly stumble with this he's like you're not there yet but you haven't stumbled i was like i'm sorry i'm simply so good at what i do sir yeah sorry i'm amazing at acting i know cherry jones looked at me and she said you should continue into the theater and i said cherry jones don't tell me what to do wow we should all be saying that to her anyway when anyway. i saw this i was i thought like geez if i was if i if somebody was like do you want to be in doubt i probably would have a week ago been like i don't know and then post watching it been like oh yeah i would totally do that show that that seems fun as hell so it's not a parable for you. There's no doubt whatsoever that you do doubt. Wow. Don't you just think Sister James is a really fun role? Like, like when I was watching it, I was They're like, this would be roles. such a fun role to do. Like, like I feel like there's so much on the page here that would be like such a juicy, fun thing. I don't know. Such a juicy, fat ass to play. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I would know. Such a juicy, fat ass to play. Yeah. I would absolutely have you play Sister James. I would, I would play any of these roles if they asked me to. Uh, it's it's they are four great roles. I mean, when we saw the video, Adrian Lennox got exit applause for her scene, as well she should have. It was yeah. really good. Yeah, granted, when they filmed it, it was July, and she had won her Tony by that point. So everyone was definitely going to the theater, being like, "Okay, one Here scene comes. wonder, one scene yeah. wonder. Let's see what happens, bitch." And then when she said, "Let that priest have my son," everyone, oh my god, she. You should herself. do a series about one scene wonders. Ah, Marilyn Cooper and Woman of the Year. Adrian exactly. And, yeah. and what's the one from what's the one from Promises Promises? Oh, um uh God, uh, Margie McDougal. Right? Like like there are there are one scene wonders out there. Yeah. I'm just plain old Margie McDougal. I don't see anything plain about you, Margie. Ah, touche. Have you watched Christine Bransky do that scene, right? Yes. I Master have. fucking class if ever there was one. 
who would you want to see in a production of doubt besides yourself you selfish whore thank you um actually i was texting about this with a friend of mine because um i saw them do angels in america at a regional theater and the woman who played um uh hannah hannah pitt really made an impact on me and she's a really fantastic actress named racy Wright. and i was texting them and i was like how do we get racy Wright in a production of doubt because like i would go see that in a heartbeat because she had such a commanding presence and she was really kind of terrifying when she wanted to be and i just like loved that quality about her and i was like i, I like i want to see that in sister aloysius i get that i would definitely be down for that uh another hannah pitt another meryl streep role we're just we're Anyone who's ever I love her, Hannah, though. I have to be honest. Like, there are some times when when Meryl Streep touches a role, and despite her impeccable acting at all times, sometimes she has a a very vulnerable quality, which is Mm -hmm. like kind of what makes her such an amazing actress is like that sort of like open vein quality. And occasionally she gets characters who are like tough guys, and they're almost like a little too vulnerable at first. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that it works so well for Hannah. I think her Hannah is like unnotable because like it's when she is strict you can almost see her already sort of chafing at the edges of her lifestyle and then like i just like her 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 continuation of character into part two like makes more sense to me than when people play it like two of a too much of a hard wall i don't know meryl no meryl is absolutely great in angels in america there's no doubt about that wow what parable <laughs> we can never say doubt ever again without adding without a saying a parable yeah um it's like i can't say america without uh saying a gay fantasia on national themes but correct i like calling anything a gay fantasia on national themes like if anything needs a a parenthetical after it it's just really fun to basically call anything a gay fantasia on national themes paddington too a gay fantasia on national themes (laughs) diana a gay fantasia on yes oh my god diana is absolutely a gay fantasia on national themes the national themes are just you know british politics schindler's list a gay fantasia on national themes. anything works do you remember uh, when they were changing over the Angels in America thing to the Share show? Yeah, the Share show, a gay Fantasia on national themes. Well, it was uh, first of all, it is, but then at the time it said Angels in America, gay Fantasia on national themes, and underneath it the caption said, "Let's do this, bitches." Do you remember that? <laughs> <laughs> I have that picture on my phone. I need you to send me that photo. That's absolutely. I will one hundred percent send you that. Um. All right, Allie, we are going to close this out. We have a game now at the end of this podcast for this for this Whoa. series. It all is the- in. It is, it's two separate games, but they are the same ones, just different names. Okay. One is called Six Degrees of Sally Murphy. Okay. The other one is called Who Lives, Who Dies, Janine Tesori. And it's just... <laughs> Love that. It's just Six Degrees of Janine Tesori. So we have to find a way from the original production of Doubt into Sally Murphy and into Janine Tesori separately. Um, Whoa, okay. We can, use, we can only use original cast members and original production team. Okay. And we can't use theaters and we can't use uh, like non-for-profits or anything like that. So like the set designer of Doubt, we could use like use a connection there somehow. Um, So let's figure this out. Let's figure out Doubt. Who do we do first? Sally Murphy or Janine Tesori? Let's do Janine Tesori first. Okay. Who from Doubt? We Let's not do Heather because I don't know her credits after this. Uh, let's. Okay. Adrian Lennox. That's a, that's a good one to do. Adrian Lennox is a good one to do. Ditto to to um uh Doug Hughes, who is the director. I feel like both of those are are good like segue points. But if Ashley, we do Adrian Lennox, I could I I know for a fact that I can do Adrian Lennox to Sally Murphy. 
Okay. But although actually, you know what? It works for both of them, but I'll do Sally Murphy first. Adrian Lennox was in Kiss Me Kate with Brian yes. Stokes Mitchell. Yes. Who was in Shuffle Along, directed by George C. Wolfe, who directed Sally Murphy in The Wild Party. There you go. But also George C. Wolfe directed Carolina Change, written by Janine Tesori. Janine so Tesori. It, it works both hey. ways. Hey, wow. That works both ways. Yeah. Once you get to George C. Wolfe, it's pretty simple. That's what I was going to do. I, I, I was thinking like there is a connection here with, with Adrian Lennox to the world of Janine Tesori, but the Sally Murphy thing was more of a surprise for me. You're welcome. What else has Doug Hughes directed? Because maybe we, because you mentioned him as a possible one. And I want to Yeah, he did. Well, before Doubt, he did Frozen, which was like such a huge deal. Do you remember that in the 04 season? That was, I feel like that's, uh, that was a major stepping stone for Brian F. O'Byrne. He'd been around, but like that was his Tony. Oh, 100%. That was like, that was like another like cultural touchstone. People really were talking about Frozen a lot. Um, he but a then child he also, murderer? is that, is that what he did? He, yeah, Doug Hughes mild, murdered a child. That's Not what he's no, for. Brian F. O'Burns character murdered a child in Frozen. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, and then he also did like A Man for All Seasons and Inherit the Wind. And then he did that Mrs. Warren's Profession that okay. had a lot of famous people in it. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Um, um, well, Doug Hughes directed Frozen with Swoozy Kurtz. Yes. Who is in House of Blue Leaves with Christine Baranski. No, with Stockard Channing. Let's find out. With Stockard Channing. No, they, they both they both did it, but I think Stockard opened the show, so we have to go with her. With Stockard Channing, Stockyard Channing, as my friend Danny calls her. Um, Stockard Channing was in Pal Joey, directed by Joe Mantello, who directed Sally Murphy and Men of No Importance. Hey. Hey, 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 hey. Hey, I hey, love hey. Men of No Importance. What a That's, good show. Yeah, it's good. Uh, I love it. Yeah. Did you see the one? I always forget that you. I did. I was not the world's biggest fan and you know i take that seriously because i did previously say i saw that the, the john doyle um sweet out 13 times yes. so my expectations are always very high yes uh i remember enjoying it but also i think i was going in with rose-colored glasses at the time you know that doubt of parable was turned into an opera at one point yes many contemporary plays are turned into um bad operas do we see a world in which doubt could be a musical no fingernails <laughs> he's really got long fingernails well, that's that's exactly why i just like i don't think so also like a good musical when a person sings a song a song is meant to be sung with some semblance of um assuredness it's supposed to be like i want or i think or i feel do you know what i mean like it's supposed to have it's supposed to make a strong stake into a understanding a deeper understanding of said character or their whatever and like for a show like this which is all about like the weird gray areas it's like i don't know how you musicalize something like that do you know what i'm saying challenge accepted i will have an absolute masterclass in writing of every song being a song of doubt and i would love that and do that and conflicted emotions and unreliable narrators uh i will have a dream ballet all about father flynn's fingernails and we're gonna have that song from legally blonde gay or european and it's gonna be gay or long fingernails uh pedophilia or just long fingernails and <laughs> listen Ugh. and we're gonna have sister aloysius's turn and uh sister, <laughs> sister james is gonna sing a part of your world song but it's all about like loving history and and wanting complacency and then um donald's mother is gonna have let it go but it's gonna be called let him have him and it's gonna be great it's gonna be it's gonna be let him let him go or whatever let him go let him go <laughs> <Lezum> go. <laughs> oh god damn 
It's going to be a great musical. Yeah. Get starring started. Aaron, starring Aaron T. Vite. Of course. I've only been positive about everyone in this community. Allie, if we're going to love theater, we have to love all of theater and support all of theater. Okay. What about when you <laughs> called me a cunt earlier? <laughs> First of all, did not say that word. <laughs> I'm putting, I'm, and now I'm inspiring doubt a parable into your listeners. I have, I have called you every other name under the sun except for that one. Okay. Well, it's a funny word. <laughs> it's a great word. It's the hard K sound. <laughs> oh, it's so good. There are, I think that my one note about doubt, not enough hard K sounds. Mm, wow. Donald's name should be like Kevin or something. So every time they're Speaking like. Speaking of the name, he is named Donald Muller in the show. And in the movie, he's Donald Miller. When did that happen? I don't know. When did that happen? I have such doubts. I have such doubts. John Patrick Shanley, I have doubts about your name choices. Why? Why did they change it? I have so many questions. Lesum gay. Lesum gay. Lesum well, gay. Well, hey, lesum gay. That's our way of saying yeah. bye. <laughs> yeah, it's our way of saying bye. Allie, where can people find you if you want them to find you? If you want to find me, I am at any place where I need to have a screen name at Miss Alice Nutting, M-S-A-L-I-C-E-N-U-T-T-I-N-G. I'm also uh, still performing some musical improv live in New York City. I perform at the Team Rumple Teaser. You know, comedy's starting to come back. It's been a little, it's been a tough little period there, but we're starting to get some stuff back up on its feet. So Comedy's having a comeback, guys. People are interested in it again. I just mean the pandemic. There's just I mean, no place to perform. I It's too long of a story. I've got no time for your long stories. I barely have time for these. I barely have time for these 90 minute plays about nuns. If you like the podcast, give us a nice rating or review. Uh, You can find me at Instagram at Matt Coplick, usual spelling. Join us next week for God knows what, because I've been doing this whole thing out of order. This might, you know, be close to the end of of the series. I don't know. Maybe even the finale. No, I can't have this be the finale. Think about your life. Pippin, think about the finale. Cherry Jones is the leading player. What would that be like? Fierce, actually. Yeah. She does sing a little bit. She was in that play with music called Imaginary Friends with Susie Kurtz. Wow. Back to Susie Kurtz again. Susie Kurtz is everywhere. She's one of us. She, she is the Jesus that is a, that is among us and around us guiding our lives. My my two my two notes about doubt, speaking of hard case, not enough hard case sounds and Susie Kurtz wasn't in it or referenced in be. any way. Yeah, why weren't there any references to Swoozie Kurtz and Doubt? Yeah, That's if Satine can mention plastic six <laughs> years before plastic is meant is invented in Moulin yes. Rouge, Swoozie Kurtz can get mentioned in Doubt. I'm just saying. I agree. Hey, I'm not going to argue with you. Who would ever argue with me? I'm right about literally everything. Unlike That's a parable, true. I am not Doubt. I have no Doubt. I am not Doubt a parable. That is how we should end this. Yes. Call me anti-Sister Aloysius, baby, because I have no, no doubts. doubts. <laughs> no doubts honey boo-boo child uh i have proof i am mary louise parker because i have proof. i am mary louise parker i have proof <sighs> um yeah great this is wonderful ali we got to find a diva to close this out who do we close out with um, oh, adrian lennox oh yeah do adrian lennox we're gonna close out with adrian lennox okay so yeah join us next week everybody for god knows what and until then have a great week and uh here's adrian to take us away take it away adrian bye, bye adrian bye
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.